Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. Oh, it's not your Aunt Susie's business what we do in our church. The Me Too movement doesn't own this pastor. The culture does not decide what this church does and where it stands. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Wow. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. It's one of those weeks, but uh, I'm really excited to be sitting down with Elizabeth McCoy uh, to kind of talk through her story. Uh, Elizabeth, can you just give you, you when you reached out and you told me kind of your story in little sample sizes, I was like, you've you've been through it. You've seen a lot of this world. So what was kind of your first introduction into the independent Baptist movement? Okay. Um, well, hi, everybody. I'm Lizzie. And some of you probably know me as Elizabeth McSpadden. So, hey, what's up? Um, I actually was born into the IFB. My dad was already a, an established pastor um, at Pleasantville Baptist Church in Iowa. And he had been there two years before I was born. And he worked at Hiles Anderson for 20 years before that. So, I've always been in this world. There was no introduction to it. It's just all I ever knew Um, until probably high school. Like I didn't really know there were other kinds of churches. I mean, Catholicism was maybe the only thing I knew because I had family members, but I had no idea about this like huge religious world. And um, I was believe it or not, not super into the IFB when I was very young because my parents had left Hiles Anderson right before all the Jack Scott stuff started. And I actually am, a, I guess, kind of a weird kid when it comes to the IFB movement because I was raised not involved with those kinds of people. 
my dad was really good about if there was corruption, we had nothing to do with that church. And even though he'd worked at Hiles for 20 years before that, I had nothing to do with it until after Brother Wilkerson came in. So um, it was it was like I had heard about these people and they knew who I was, but I didn't really know until I think going to Berean. And then I started seeing other tour groups and I was like, oh, wow, there's this whole other side of IFB that I didn't even know existed. So it's weird right. straddling kind of two different parts of the IFP. Right. So would you say your early experiences were pretty positive, like overall? I mean, it sounds like your dad was like truly pretty independent, which is there's there's two types of independent. There's like we're independent Baptist and then we're like actually independent and we kind of think for ourselves a little bit. They they did. Uh, My parents did. They they ran with their own path. And if someone in the IFB was doing something, they were like, okay. Bye. Like we just yeah. we just didn't have anything to do. And they were also really open. Like that was something that was weird for me after I got older, that people were like, How could you say that about that college or about that pastor? Mm-hmm. And I was like, What are you talking about? He's evil. Why wouldn't we say something? And they were just like, Well, you just can't say that. And that's not how I grew up. I grew up that like if you see something, you say something. And mm. if people would come to my dad and say, What do you think of this pastor? Or what do you think of this college? He would just be honest. He wasn't trying to destroy anybody. He would just say, Well, um, this pastor has this, this, and mm. this, which I don't think fit your moral belief just based on knowing you. And there's these accusations, or this person's been known to have like a criminal offense, <laughs> or, you know, right. like this college just is not good. I don't recommend it. And he was really good about being honest with people. And our church people were pretty aware, you know, like they're not perfect, you know, obviously, because and we didn't know but you know in their defense some people are just really great liars and you just don't know until you get there but yeah I I really grew up being open like that was weird for me when I got older that people just weren't because that's not at all how I was raised my parents raised me really normal and that's the other thing too I, I when I was at Hiles Anderson for college I had people who and I'm not being vulgar um just had no idea about sex And I had a friend who was engaged and she was weeping and she was terrified because it hit her like, oh, my goodness, I don't even know anything about this. Like, it's so scary. And that was so weird to me because when I was going through like puberty and everything, my parents sat down and talked with us. Everything was very medical. It was never gross and weird. It was medical. It was open. It was, if you need something, let me know. Like Mm. my dad wasn't weird about like a woman's menstrual cycle. Like he would go pick up menstrual for me and it just wasn't weird. It was because that's what happens. Yeah. And, um, it's just, I've, I never realized how well-rounded I was raised in the IFB that I was a weird kid. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. No. And I, and I resonate with that a lot. Like that was kind of my background is that I, I think people expect a horror story, you know, when they Mm -hmm. ask me, why'd you start doing the show? And, you know, it, it wasn't me. It wasn't my experiences. My, my, my family was always, you know, we want you to know what you believe because that's what you have studied yes. and, and believed, or we want you to have your convictions based on, you know, how you feel like, you know, you're supposed to live. And, and like, there was a lot of just 
just a lot of encouragement of like how to think like, here's how mm-hmm. to process information. You know, there's some things that we clearly think are wrong, but here's why. And, mm-hmm. um, and as I've gotten older and, you know, I, I went through that period, you know, when I first left the house where it was like, okay, which of these things are mine and what is just things mm-hmm. that I just do because my parents said, and there was a lot of Liberty there to just say, Hey, in this area, I understand your reasoning for it, but I don't, I don't see yes. it. Like I, I, I tried to see it and like, I, re- I was raised in it for 20 years, but I don't see this, this kind of experience and this kind of, um, like understanding of this topic. And it's just been awesome. And like, that's one of the things where, you know, in some ways it makes it harder when you have a disagreement because it's yeah. easy when someone's, when someone's a straight up jerk to you, it's easy to be like, <laughs> well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Um, but you know, like my parents, it's always like, Hey, we love you. Um, but we were just thinking about this and you're like, man, you have to be so nice about it. Now we have to have this like awkward conversation. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I totally relate to your background for sure. And, and I, I'm really thankful that was my experience because mm-hmm. I've talked it's, to plenty of people rare. who haven't had that. Right. Exactly. And that was the thing is at the church, my parents were running. I obviously I grew up there. I actually married my husband to I was in the nurseries there with so you're like uh, he Christian, was my childhood Christian. we got to marry the the kid you grew up with you know that was my <laughs> well you'll find out later that it was like a weird strange turn of events like that we lost contact and like came back together again later on down huh. the road like I I did tell him at four years old like I saw him across the playground and I was like I'm gonna marry you and he was just like okay and that was it so I guess I I guess I just prophesied um That's awesome but it wasn't weird. I would say when I describe my childhood to people, they're like, it sounds like a Hallmark movie right. because I grew up like in this big, beautiful white farmhouse on the top of this hill. And we had these gorgeous oak trees and my family like taught us kids. We would go out and we'd be singing and we had pet dogs that ran around and we would save bunnies under my mom's giant peony bush. Like that was my childhood. Mm. And, um, that's I think that's why everything that happened later in life was so alarming, because even though it wasn't as bad as what other people have experienced in churches, it just was so it rocked my world because yeah. it was so far because I came from a church that was really based on love. And that was the truth. And like people are like, oh, well, you just say that because it was your parents. No, trust me. I haven't been in church consecutively for two years now. And I've sat down and unbiasedly unpacked everything. And I can honestly say from the outside looking in that my parents truly love their people and I got a lot of like my good traits from them, but those were skills that were taught to me. And I realized that now, like, um, you know, I think something that's really common in IFB is kids are taught like, oh, don't hang out with that kid in the neighborhood because they're right. going to be a bad influence. That was not how it was in my house. All of the kids in the neighborhood came to our house. Like our house was like the fun place. We were the safe haven. And my parents saw it as an opportunity to reach those children and show them maybe love they didn't have in their homes rather than them bringing bad things into our homes because they knew they'd raised this well. And so I had friends that were not in church who were just neighbors and we had really great connections with our neighbors who were like, I'll never be Christian because I know jerks there, but like you guys almost made me Christian. Um, Because when I was growing up, my parents always said that Christ is love and kindness and that if people are going to become Christian, all you have to do is be loving and kind Mm. and God will do the rest. Yeah. And that's just kind of how I live my life even still is I'm not trying to force you to be a Christian because obviously God wants you to come to him yourself. 
my job is just to be like Christ mm. and that's it. And I found that that's so f- such a far cry from how so many people were raised. They were taught like everyone is evil and everyone is out to get you and the Satan's yeah. banging down your door and you're like six years old and they're like, eh, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It, it's uh it's a lot different than, you know, like saving them before they can enter your club to kind of hang out with you. Mm-hmm. And it's a, uh, it is, it's just a different approach. And that's kind of one thing that I've always thought is funny within just Christian subculture in general is like, there's this idea that, you know, we talk so much about like, you know, no one changes unless God changes them. No one Mm -hmm. gets saved unless God gives them, you know, God gives them grace and faith. And, you know, there's this, there's this change, but then we get really mad at people who don't do it themselves. Like we get really upset with people like, why aren't you living like me? And it's like, well, God hasn't, save them yet. Like, like there's literally this, it's just a very interesting way that we look at things is like, we look at Mm -hmm. like the gospel being so transformative, but then we want people to transform before we feel comfortable building relationship where we can even get a chance to share the gospel. It's a, it's a very, very odd way of looking at it, but yeah, I think um, it's because in the IFB, we're so used to what's normal to us mm -hmm. and it's done on our time. And if anyone's known God any amount of time, it's never done on our time Mm. ever. And I think that, and you know, that's something I, I have discussed with people before. Um, and I did at Hiles Anderson. I, t- I sat down with the college president and I was like, this needs to stop because I'm seeing college students do this to people. And it's not on our time. You know, it's on God's time. And they're not going, I think people get frustrated because we want them to change on our time. And it's not going to be on our time. And you just need to worry about yourself. <laughs> like I'm just, you know, you just need yeah. to worry about yourself. Right. Um, yeah. It's not this, it, it's not this agenda driven relationship, mm-hmm. you know? And th- and that's where it, like, that's what I see kind of sidebarring on this, but I mean, that's what I see a <laughs> lot with um, like when I look at like stories of Christ in the Bible is like, there were a lot of times he just had a really healthy kind interaction with somebody mm-hmm. and then kept going. <laughs> you know what I mean? He like, was just like, what's up? He was Bye. just like, hey, I'm going to be really <laughs> nice to this person. And that was the whole story. Like, mm-hmm. oh, Jesus was really nice to this person with no agenda. <laughs> it wasn't this big call. He wasn't like, now leave your family and follow me. Like, yeah. like it was just, I'm going to go serve that person. And like, I, I don't understand why that gets lost so much. And we want to, you know, the minute we have a new coworker, it's like, well, have you gone through the Romans road? And it's like, whoa, you know, yeah. like let's, let's ease up a little bit, but, um, but yeah, g- kind of going back, you, you mentioned like it being a shock and the bubble bursting, um, w- you know, the Brian name, you know, people that already know that story go like, they kind of cringe. Cause that's one of the, it's one of the creepier stories within <laughs> that world. Um, yeah. was that the first time that the bubble kind of burst for you? Was that like the first big story? Yeah. And um, can you just kind of give us some context, like when you guys started going, you know, what the context was when you first mm-hmm. arrived at Brian? Yes. Um, so it definitely was my bubble bursting, my perfect little world. And this I is would what say age? it wasn't even, a, I was eight. So okay, I actually okay. have a picture and I know most people on the podcast don't, but I, I have a big photo book and I'm a shutter bug and I like to keep things right. and I have stuff all the way from when I was three years old up to 12th grade in the school book. And I would write things down and I have little pockets and I was like, oh man, I can't believe I found this. So this was the first day that we were in Florida. This is how little I was. I was eight years old. I was barely eight years old. And, um, 
my sister, my oldest sister. So I'm from a family of five kids. I'm number four out of five. My oldest sister is 10 years older than me. So she was already in college at this point, and she had decided to go to Berean because that's where some of her friends were going to go. And um, we'd had associations with Berean before that from um, Camp Fort Bluff in Tennessee. I don't know. Maybe some of y'all, you'll know what that is. Uh, It was pretty big when my sisters were in high school, like before they sold it. And so there were a lot of Christian schools there. And so we knew kids from Berean from there beforehand. Um, And so my sister, Amber... She was there a whole year before we got there. And so that's how we kind of started our association. She brought like a friend home with her for Christmas break. And then like Tom Neal was like, oh, your daughter's on the tour group. Let's bring the tour group, you know. And when we were in Iowa, all good things come to an end. And it was just one of those things where my family's ministry there, it was it was done. You know, we would had done what we were supposed to do. And God was saying, it's time to move on. And we were looking around and being like, okay, God, like, you know, give us a sign, show us what it is. And lo and behold, Tom Neal was like, bing, opportunity for you, you know? And at the time, a lot of people don't know this either. Berean Baptist College was dying. It, it, it's dead now, <laughs> but it was dying then. And um, it just had been so mismanaged. A hundred percent mismanaged. Like it was not being run like a college and it wasn't being run by people who knew how to run colleges had never worked there. You know, it was really mismanaged. And so they knew, Hey, your dad has, he worked at Hiles Anderson directly underneath of Jack, like Hiles for 20 years. People know him. People love him. People trust him. He's good at his job. He's, he's got the, um, my dad has a degree. So both my parents have degrees in education. And this is something a lot of people don't like they're qualified to teach at colleges. They have college, um, professor level degrees and what they do. And that was what they thought they would do. They thought they were going to work in college ministry for a really long time. And so they thought, let's bring Bill McSpadden in. He could save our college. Um, and, um, of course my family's like, well, we're looking for an opportunity. This sounds great. And the way that Brian traps you when you, you aren't there is they paint this oasis and I would, okay. So it's funny cause my husband, I've said this to him before, and I would say that going from normal life and jumping into Berean is like having someone come to you in the middle of a desert and say, here's this beautiful pool. And it is full of this crystal clear water and it is sparkling and you're going to feel so refreshed. You're going to feel amazing. It's going to solve all your problems in this desert. Just jump in and you jump in. And at first you're like, Ooh, yeah, this is nice. Yeah. I feel great. And then you realize that it's not a pool. It's a pit and your feet don't touch the ground and you start drowning. (laughs) Like (laughs) that's how I would describe what going from normal life to jumping into Brian is. And so they painted this picture for us. They were like, Oh, we're going to provide this house for you, which the church owned and we paid rent to that. We didn't know till later we got there. Um, Oh, like it was paid off already. Yeah. The church owned it. They owned a couple different houses. They had a realtor that was at the church and they owned houses that they would rent out to potential or new staff members. Right. So they could pick where you lived basically. Yeah. Um, but they were like, see, it's beautiful. It's not that far from everything. You're going to be like in this nice neighborhood. You're going to get this cushy job. And they were offering my mom a job too. So my dad was offered the job as the president of Berean College. Mm. And my mom was going to be one of the teachers there. 
looked like cushy pay. My dad would get an office. They would be able to work with college students again. My dad would be able to help with the activities department, which is what he ran at Miles for 20 years. The activities department didn't begin until my dad started it. He, okay. The activities department there is now, that didn't exist. My dad began that as a student because he said, where are the activities for students? They have to be kept busy. Why is there nothing fun? <laughs> so right. um, he was like, this would be great. I can help this college, you know. Um, oh, it's this good church. They, you know, have a need. Oh, you know, this sounds kind of what God's leading us toward. Let's go. Like it, there were no signs that this was a cult. There were no signs that this was going to screw up our lives. There was, it was painted like it was going to be paradise. We we're going to live in Florida mm-hmm. and like be at a bigger church and, you know, we'd be at a bigger school and our, our school would be free because we were staff kids. So that's like huge, you know, cause sometimes Christian school is really expensive. Like it was just, everything sounded great. And my sister, my second sister, so I have two older sisters. The, my oldest sister was already a student the whole year before we got there. My second sister graduated the summer that we moved. So she would have just graduated high school and would be going to college in the fall. And they were like, she'll be able to come with you. They can go home on weekends. You won't have to be like, it sounded great. Yeah. Like an ideal situation. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was like, wow, this is going to be the best thing that ever happened. And that is exactly what Berean wants you to think. That is exactly what they pitched you is that it's going to be the best thing that ever happened to you and your whole dang family and your whole dang life. And it's going to be the greatest ministry you've ever been a part of. Hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, that wasn't the case. <laughs> no, it wasn't <laughs> not even close. And I didn't even have it as bad as other people. Right. Um, it's just, and that's because they knew my dad would destroy them. <laughs> so, so what was the first thing? Where it's like, okay, this veneer kind of gets chipped away. Like, what's the first thing that you guys were like, okay, this is kind of weird. So, um, f- this is, it's a really, it's a really weird story. Um, but for me, this is when I first started being like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this place. Um, I think I had it a little sooner than the rest of my family. I think my parents were aware, but as far as my siblings were like going, they were like, oh, we're in college and friends and funds. I've, I've always kind of been like, suspicious of people I don't don't really trust people very much like you have to earn that um but we were at camp and it was so we'd moved in the summer so it would have been the next summer so the first summer we were there like through the school year and we were we were in Fort Bluff and we were there as counselors my parents were and they were they brought me because I was like I want to go like I like to travel and my other siblings were like let's just stay home and chill so it was just me and my mom and my dad and Greg Neal and his kids and his wife were also going to be there as counselors and they had a cabin next to us so the counselors stayed in cabins that were different and separated from like the big cabin where all of the campers were there was like a huge lodge so my older brother was in the lodge and I that was like the only other sibling I had there, but it was such a tight schedule that we really didn't run into each other. I just kind of saw him here and there. But the first day we got there, we literally got out of the car and a bee stung my mom like on her foot and it swelled up. But you're like, oh, it's because it's a bee sting. And within like the hour, her whole leg was inflamed and like swollen. And she was like, it hurts so bad. Like, I feel like I can't put any weight on it. And the camp nurse was like, uh, you need to go to the hospital. 
So my dad was just like, I'll be back in an hour. You know, like you're with some staff people. They let them know like, hey, can Elizabeth just stay with you? I just got to run my wife to the hospital, you know, just thinking, oh, it's an allergic reaction. Um, And it turns out my mom actually had a very severe blood clot that the bee sting had triggered. And it was so bad that they said, your wife has to stay here the entire week. And then she needs to be bedridden and she needs to go immediately to a hospital when you get home. And so my dad, of course, is like, okay, like I've got this kid on camp. Like she can't live in a hospital, but she's all alone. Um, And so he was like, oh, what am I going to do? And Greg Neal was like, she can stay with us in our cabin and we'll take care of her and we'll make sure she's fine. And, you know, of course, when you don't know, you're just like, Oh, thank God, you know, an exasperated parent being like, yay, my kid's not going to be alone. <laughs> like in this strange camp when she's nine year, eight year, nine years old. And that, that was like the first day. So we have to be there five more days. And I was like, I wanted to just go to the hospital. Like, please don't leave me with these people. I don't know these people. Like up to this point, like I'd been there, but I really didn't have any interactions with Greg Neal, like personally, I really didn't know them that well. And, um, my dad was like, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And I was like, okay, whatever. I just got to deal with it. Cause this is how it is. And that first night I went over there for dinner and even at nine years old, it's not like they necessarily did anything weird, but I was so uncomfortable. And it was like they were too nice. Do you know what I mean? Like they were being way too nice to me and it was weird. And I just was like, can I just go see my brother? And nobody would let me go see my brother. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like my mom is in the hospital and I'm nine years old. My dad's not here. Can you like, why can't my older siblings stay with me? I don't understand. Like that just feels so bizarre to me. Like you, really, you guys are going to be that stingy. Um. And they were like, oh, you could just stay with us, you know, overnight, which I absolutely did not want to do. I was like, oh, heck no, I am not staying here overnight. Like, I don't know you. I don't know your kids. You guys are creepy. <laughs> and I know maybe they were just trying to be nice, but it was it was terrifying. And so I waited till they all went to sleep. And then I snuck out of their cabin and walked all the way over to my cabin. And I locked all the doors because I was a very responsible child. I locked all the doors. I checked all the windows. I closed the curtains and I went upstairs. And I just I did that. And I woke up the next morning and I made myself breakfast and I just showed up at chapel and they're like where were you and I was like just had to grab something and I just stayed alone for the rest of the week and they didn't bother with me which is hilarious because they told my dad like oh don't worry we've got her and that was like my first interaction with Greg Neal and I already was like I don't feel comfortable (laughs) I couldn't put a finger on it but like that was the first time I that I remember really interacting with their family and him in particular Hmm. And he just, it was like, he just wouldn't shut up. And I was like, don't talk to me, please. (laughs) When did your, so was it pretty quick after that, your family started kind of echoing some of the same concerns or was it something where until the, Um, I mean, the big story that we're going to be talking about in a second, I mean, was that kind of when everything switched and was like, oh, there's something going on. Yeah. People were starting to leave the church. Okay. And what triggered that? Just whispers of stuff or what? Um, no one really knew it was just told that, oh, they just got, they were wrong with God. So that's uh, all that every Greg was no, that the people who left were, oh, okay. No one knew that, why like, the people left, but no, nobody, or if they were, they just weren't being told. Okay. Um, you know, and I guess 
also I'm little, so maybe adults just don't tell you things too. But yeah. um, I don't remember because in school, gossip was pretty prevalent. Like if something was going on in the church, you could find out at school, even in elementary. So I don't, I don't remember hearing anything beside, oh, they just got wrong with God. They're just yeah. not right. And so they just, they're just, they're just terrible. I mean, just never heard anything about them again. Cause once you leave Berean, they shun you. Right. Like if you don't go to the church that they choose, which is basically just an extension of their church run by someone they sent, they, you're just, you just never talk about them. You just never yeah. hear about them. And so it was like, oh, they just left and it was a big deal. And then it was done. Um, and then that first year returning in the fall, they did these huge pay cuts for hmm. staff members. And um, I, I'm trying to remember it properly because I don't want to be mistaken, but I do know that when there were times where there were weeks where my dad didn't get paid at all. And then they laid off my mom because of her leg, but they made it seem like, Oh, it's, it's for your own good. But it was like the worst time to lay off somebody. Like now they're in the hospital with hospital bills and, they they just need a few like months and it was in the summer too so it's not like in the fall she couldn't have done something so they weren't getting paid and that was true for a lot of the staff as well of course tom neal and greg were getting every ounce of their paychecks right yeah but um that's when it was kind of like why are you guys not getting pay cuts and everybody else is getting pay cuts to the point where they're not even getting paid and kind of similarly to Hiles, you know, they would say, oh, well, it's about the ministry, not the money. So if you're in it for the ministry, God will just take care of it and you just have mm. to have faith. Right. So I think that was when it, other people on staff were starting to be like, this isn't right. Yeah. And my family in particular was like, well, this is not what we were promised. So. Right, right. Yeah. No, definitely. Um so you mentioned before we started recording, so you, you were there for about what, two years? We were there for almost four years. We were about, we were there about three and three fourths. We okay. left right before the end of the fourth year. Okay. And what, so for people that don't know Greg's story, I mean, it's a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty well-known story by my audience, but basically someone at the church ended up finding tapes that he had, he had recorded like women changing in his office. And by the time that the tapes were found, it was past the statute of limitations. And that's the only reason that the, that is, yeah, that's like the only reason he and wasn't that's something charged. People don't know. And that's yeah. something that is definitely miscommunicated there. This is video inside Fleming Island's Berrien Baptist Church in 2001. Investigators say the video you're watching is from a camera Pastor Greg Neal hid behind plants. Investigators blacked out the top of the video because they say this camera recorded two female church members undressing. Back in 2011, an assistant state attorney said this about Pastor Greg Neal. The evidence of his crimes in 2011 is overwhelming. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations had expired. So the only reason he didn't end up in jail is just because the statute of limitations was exceeded. It's not mm. because he was innocent, which was what was portrayed. Yeah, They tried really hard to portray that I know the argument tonight, Pastor, the, the government is going to target churches. Pastor, the media is corrupt and complicit in the destroying of lives and propagating evil. And I would say those two statements are probably true. 
But let me help us tonight because recently the Lord gave me some clarity on some things that I have been wondered and praying about. Have you asked the question that over the course of the last eight to ten years, why have we faced the things that we have faced as a church? Why has the Emmanuel Baptist Church been betrayed by brethren? Why personally, I've asked the question, have I faced slander, accusation, targeting for personal destruction? Why have my family been targeted? Why have I been betrayed by so-called friends? Stay with me, I'm going somewhere. Why has the Emmanuel Baptist Church been targeted in the past by government institutions with the stated intent to close our doors? Why has Medialis done their best to disparage, target, and hate churches like the Emmanuel Baptist Church? I've also asked the question, God, why in the world have you moved us not to a new location once, but twice? Why have we had Sunday school under oak trees, church in a tent, school on buses, cram into a tiny building, and every attempt that we've made to build block those attempts? Why? I don't know if you've asked those questions, but I've wondered what God's plan is through this. Let me answer those questions with a question. I want you to give me your mind and your heart tonight. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? God didn't place Esther in this story the day that the crown went on her head. God placed Esther in this story for the day we read in Esther chapter number 4. And um, uh, to be honest, most of the trauma I would say that I got from Berean, really, Greg Neal was just the tip of the iceberg. That's really not even the half of it. Hmm. That is not even half of what was going on. But I think that's why it was so terrifying that it happened because they were like, Oh no, if this happens and there's a huge investigation, this might show a bunch of other very questionable things. So when you say that, when you say it's tip of the iceberg, like, cause this is near the end of your time there when this happens, this is like what, three years in, or, or mm-hmm. maybe, yeah, it was. Know. We left the same year that it all came out. Okay, so so what was the rest of that iceberg? Like, what what are the things that it was the three years before? Yeah. Um. So just just to give you an idea, um. So when we first got there, they make you take a test, like most schools do. When you transfer school, you take a standardized test. And my parents were like, do you mind if you, we wait like until the kids are settled, you know, cause they're not going to be able to do well on this. You know, they just moved. They don't have a bed. They're literally eating on the floor. We don't have furniture yet. And they're just like, oh, they'll be fine. Just bring them in. It'll be fine. So we took the test and of course we didn't do well. And they pulled us back a grade, both me and my little brother, which was ridiculous because the year before, I mean, I had done enough to skip a grade. So obviously all of our academic stuff was on grade, but they were like, oh, it's just not. And um, 
my mom was like, what are you talking about? It's not like, this is all I'm bringing you all of their educational stuff. And you have to think like my parents are teachers. My whole, I come from a huge family of educators. Um, and so that's really important. So she had all these records and she's like, I, can you let them take the standardized test again? Like we asked you guys to wait and they were like, no, let's just start the school year and see what happens. So I started the school year and I was excelling faster than anyone in my grade because obviously I was on grade for my grade, which was a grade ahead of what they put me in. And so my mom, oh, I love her so much. She she said, bring me home every single one of your tests, every one of your quizzes, all of your work, and we're going to file it. And you're going to get straight A's and then we're going to get you back in your grade because she knew I could do it. And so she did at the end of that first semester, she walked into David Wright's office. He was the principal and she set down this huge stack of papers on his desk and said, put my daughter back in her grade. And at first they were pretty resistant and um, she just kept pursuing. And then I, I have the letter still that they gave us where they were like, upon further inspection, I guess we're, you're right. Your daughter is back on grade point. And so it was like, there was such a lack of communication and it felt like they didn't want to talk to parents at the school. Like they just didn't want to have communication with the parents. If you wanted to have communication with them as a parent, you had to kind of demand it. Like you had to go out of your way for it. There was none of this. Oh, the teacher's going to come unless your kid was doing something wrong. And in that case, then you would hear about it. But um, that was like the first frustration, which doesn't sound like much. But like as an educator and a teacher, your job is to have really big communication with the teachers and your best interest should be in the student. And it just wasn't like that at all. It didn't feel like that at all. They, they didn't really care about us. And um, that was when teachers started taking pay cuts too. So teachers were getting these huge pay cuts. And by the time I was in sixth grade, they weren't getting paid at all. So I started. How were they? What were, were they bivocational then? Or what was, what was the income source? Or was it purely like. I think it was either they were just on unemployment or their spouse was the breadwinner or they were working outside of school at nights. Um, Again, I was a kid, so I don't really know exactly what the staff were all having to do to live. Um, But it was definitely that like the teachers were starting to come and go where a bunch of new teachers were coming in just suddenly who were really inexperienced. And a lot of the teachers that had been there for a while were just like gone. And it was just like, why are, why is everybody leaving? You know, and the teachers that were there were so overworked and they were so exasperated. Like they couldn't even focus in class. They were very short tempered, which is what I think led to a lot of the things that happened to students in schools. So my brother was in third grade at this time and he had a teacher who she flipped a student's desk, like another third grader, because his desk wasn't perfectly clean and organized. And she made him pick everything up off the floor. And he was weeping. And she was saying, like, this is what happens when you do this. And I remember my brother coming home and telling us this. We were like, oh, my goodness, you're in third grade. Like, of course, a third grader isn't going to have a perfectly organized desk like you can't flip a student's desk in class like it it was like just a lot of stuff like that and um, something in the school is if you weren't from there and if you weren't one of the popular staff kids like you were not treated well you were definitely an outsider 
It didn't matter how long you were there. If you were, so the thing about Berean, and this is typical in cults, and you know, I'm sure since you've done your fair share of research, you see this too, is there's always a hierarchy. There's always the, whoever's the leader is at the very tippy top alongside God. Like they just kind of are on one platform together. Almost synonymous. Yeah. Yeah. And then underneath of that, it's whoever their like chosen few are. So it might not even be the whole staff. It's like maybe five, four or five guys, right? It's usually the people they have sitting on the pulpit behind them. And, um, and then you have the rest of the staff, you know, just because they're staff. And then you have the favored members. So that was people that like tithed a lot of money or, um, and I know this sounds, you know, creepy, but like, honestly, if you were a really beautiful woman, you kind of became a favorite quite quickly. <laughs> um, and that was, and then underneath of that, it was like the Brian kids. So that's, that would be the kids that like were born and raised there. And then everybody else under that just kind of fell into weird categories of their own. And, um, of course, something that was big at Berean is like how rich you were. So if you were like poor, you were kind of treated badly, at least even in the school, like you kind of get picked on for not having the latest of everything or a nice house. And then if you were, um, like bigger, like if you weren't perfectly skinny, um, and that was something that was a huge problem in the school is even in elementary, like eating disorders were really praised. And that is something a lot of people probably don't know or talk about. But like um, not eating was like seen as this thing of discipline and like the obsession to be ridiculously skinny was very prevalent. Like if you were curvy you just were kind of like, oh, it's okay. Like, you'll lose weight. We'll help you lose weight. Um, and I remember, because most of, most of the stuff that happened to me didn't happen when I was in elementary. Most of it happened once I got into the junior high, which is pretty typical. You know, I mean, it makes sense because <laughs> you're older and you're not really as shrouded by the protection of parents because now you're in teen activities. You're required to go to the teen soloing. You have to be like in separated from your family. Like you had to sit with the youth group. That wasn't really an option. Like you didn't get to choose. Like it was like, so it was easier for them to like do things. And um, I remember one time in chapel, the principal got up and his wife looking back now, and I don't say this to be unkind. Like I, I just want people to know that I don't think everyone at Berean is evil. Like there's definitely really good people. And I definitely feel sorry now that I'm older looking back because they were being just as manipulated and lied to as all of us were. Even if they participated in something, a lot of it was fear mongering and just brainwashing. And so I don't say anything to be hurtful, but the principal's wife, who was also the volleyball coach, was painfully anorexic. Like looking back now, she needed help. And she, I remember he was in chapel and he said like talking about, I don't even know nonsense. And then all of a sudden he was talking about like self-discipline and how some of y'all don't have self-discipline. And he kind of like pointed to his wife over to the side and was like, you know, my wife has so much self-discipline. She only ate two slices of turkey and pineapple for lunch every day this week. And look at her and, you know, and she runs on the treadmill like two to three hours every night. And, you know, she's so self-disciplined. And that was like a, a huge red flag for me 
because I that's I knew that wasn't okay. Like, girl, you can't just eat like nothing for lunch. But it was it was so praised. And like being skinny was seen as like you needed to be skinny. And if you weren't skinny and a runner and didn't hardly eat anything, you were just looked down upon, which is a lot of where my ridicule came from, because I come from a family of endomorph and ectomorph bodies. Genetically, we're just bigger people. Or I would say we gain weight easier. So going through puberty, of course, I'm going to gain weight. All the hormones are all over the place. And they would be like, it's okay. You know, if you just start running and like watching what you eat. I mean, I'm 12 and 13. Um, and we would go to, it was required to go to volleyball camp after you turned 13 or like once you were in the uh the junior high like it was just required like you had to go or you couldn't return to school in the fall so you had to go the whole summer and they would run us I mean 12 13 year old girls they would run us miles to the point where we were throwing up and that was seen as like an accomplishment and I remember I hid twice that summer (laughs) I in my dad's office I would run around the side of the building so um, to paint a picture, there's the church in the front, which I'm sure if you you know have seen photos, you see the huge building, and then all of the school and stuff is in the back. So the dorm rooms were kind of off to the side, the college dorms, and that's what we ran around. And you would just run it and run it and run it and run it. And the offices where my dad were were attached to the school, but on the outside. So if you went behind that building when no one else was looking, you could like run really fast into the offices. And so I literally twice that summer i remember i waited until all the girls were around and i just watched like two of my friends throw up and the the volleyball coach being like oh suck it up keep going like keep running like they're throwing up they haven't eaten anything that day it's 90 degrees i mean this is florida and they're getting no water they're just chugging gate like it's it was really bad And I was like, I'm not doing this. And I went and I sat huddled in my dad's office under his desk for two hours till he came back from his meetings and classes. And I said, take me home. And then the second time that I hid in his office, I didn't know that in the office next to him, the guy was not at his classes like he was supposed to be. He was sitting in his office and he saw me. And he brought one of the coaches in to get me because he was worried about me. And I pretended to be asleep on the floor. I, I could hear their voices coming. And I was like, I'm not going back out there. So I like laid on the floor and I pretended like I was passed out or asleep or something. And they just they saw me and then they just walked out. And later on in the fall, when we returned to school, the preach the a guy who was preaching, he was the basketball coach. He was talking about how like, oh, God has not given us a spirit of fear and that like tough things are good for you, you know, because that was something really big in the college and definitely in the high school is like the hard things are good for you. Like it's character building, like you're supposed to go through stuff like this. And um, he, my brother had just graduated from the high school and my brother had been on the basketball team and he called him McSpadden by his last name. And he never acknowledged me by my first name. He always called me McSpadden like my brother. I was the only girl he did that to. And I know that was public humiliation to make me feel bad. 
um, because that was something they did a lot. They would like pick on you really publicly. And in the chapel service, he was like, God has not given us a spirit of fear and hard things are good for you and all that. Isn't that right, McSpadden? And like, he pointed at me and I was just like, sure. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do? I'm 13 years old. Like, it's chapel. Like, I don't disagree with you, sir. Um, and he was like, we didn't think that in the summer. And I was like, what is he? Like, I had, I didn't even know he knew about this. Like, and he was just like, quick, run and hide under the desk. And it was like, everybody started laughing and knowingly. And I just, I was like, this is a whole like month later. What did you do? Write this down? Like to remember it or like he was the basketball coach. He wasn't even there. It had nothing to do with it. And I just, I just remember getting so picked on later that day. Like people like, oh, you know, if you really were brave, you would have run right past her and thrown up. Yeah. Um, and so that was, that was really one of the first things that I went through personally, cause I was all alone in the junior high. I mm. had no siblings anymore. Cause I'd been in the elementary with my brother, but I was now by myself in the high school cause they combined it. So, you know, you think there's a seventh grader with these seniors. It wasn't good. It was a really right. bad situation. Hey everybody. Uh, welcome back to the preacher boys podcast. We're sitting down for part two of this conversation. There's way too much to talk about. Uh, and I had to jet pretty unceremoniously at the end of our first, uh, first half of our talk. But uh, we were just getting into kind of your junior high experience, and um, it sounds like you were already in kind of a weird, kind of restrictive environment. But it seems like that ramped up quite a bit going into junior high. Why do you why do you feel that is, and how did it, like how did the atmosphere change from being a a kid versus being a you know teenager in that in that world? Yes, of course. So the thing about Berean and anyone who's been there through elementary up into junior high will agree with this is when you're in elementary, your parents are still quite involved in your life. They're still quite involved in the teachers. They come pick you up from school. They kind of have to be at activities. It's very much that your parents are there. But when you get into the junior high, you're considered in the youth group. And once you entered the youth group at Berean, all these things that were required of you to be a student at the school and to stay a student at the school came into I guess, fruition. I didn't say that right. Like you had to do things. And so something that you had to do was you had to do Wednesday night sewing every single week. You didn't get to go home. You had to bring whatever you had for the whole afternoon and evening with you because you wouldn't see your parents. And that was like, snacks, dinner, sort of, or like your clothes, your makeup, because the, the only time after you got to go home on Wednesdays was after church. So you came to school at like 8.30 in the morning and you didn't go home till almost like 9.30 at night, like every Wednesday. And you had to do that or you would be expelled from school. The other thing is you had to participate in something called the Miracle Car Wash, which is funny because I actually have a pamphlet. <laughs> still in like my school but I looked at and you had to do that every summer you were required to do volleyball camp which I previously mentioned or basketball camp if you're a guy and you were separated from your parents at church so you were not allowed to sit with them you had to sit in the youth group 
with other teenagers, which wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't an absolute requirement. And you also had to go to the main church. So at this point, um, the second church, which they are now, which is Emmanuel Baptist, they had already merged when I was in elementary, which a lot of people don't know this. My dad is actually the one that was running that. They gave that to him, which is not on their history when you look on their website. So I was no longer allowed to go there with them. I had to go to the one in Fleming Island. That was a requirement. And so you were so separated from your parents that it was really easy to manipulate teenagers. It was really easy to make life super duper hard (laughs) because parents were just no longer involved. And if you were the only one of your family in the teen group, that was even worse because you had no siblings, which is the situation I was in. My brother had graduated that summer before. So I went from having a sibling, two siblings in the school to having one who was in the elementary. And the other requirement is when you're in the elementary, you are not allowed to talk to high schoolers. And when you're a high schooler or junior higher, you're not allowed to talk with the elementary kids which normally I kind of understand, but if you have a sibling, that seems kind of stupid or like, okay, I can talk to you when I babysit you, but heaven forbid I say hi at school. Like it was just really weird. Like it was very like separated. You couldn't have anything to do with that. So it got really crappy uh, because they just don't tell you about that until you get in it (laughs) and it just hits you. How did that? Uh, how did that kind of progress? So obviously, I know from talking beforehand that you um, you didn't end up staying much longer after that transition happened. So um, uh, you can either kind of just talk about kind of the end of that time there, or if there's anything else that kind of happened, or if it kept building up up until that that point of actually leaving the the church. Yes. So by the time I got into the junior high, all of the Greg Neal stuff had already come out. It had come out, I believe, that summer or that spring before. I don't know exactly. And people had already started leaving the church. By the time I got into the junior high, I think about 100 families had left or 100 members. I'm not 100 percent. And tithe has gone down significantly. A lot of kids I went to school with for years before that were just gone and their families were gone. Um, a lot of disowning was going on. So this is something else that went on at Berean. And this is how you, if you, if you're wondering if they're, if you're in a cult, this is a way you can tell is once you left, you were shunned. You became truly dead to everyone else there. So I had a friend from elementary who was very, very dear to me and her family had left. And there, I had a picture uh, in my locker with a group of girls and she happened to be in it. And another student saw it and told a staff member and the staff member called me into her classroom and said, is it true you have a picture with so-and-so in your locker? And I was like, yeah, but it's a group photo and everybody else is here. And she told me, well, you can't have that. Like X members, you can't have pictures of X members in your locker. That's just unacceptable. You have two options. Either you throw it away or you have someone cut out the face of this girl in the photo and then you could keep it in your locker. Like this is literally something they would do. The teen girls in the youth group, they would pride themselves on is they'd be like, oh, I'm really, really good at cutting faces out of photos. And I just was like, 
Okay. So I just stuck it in my binder and took it home and I still have that photo. Um, But that's really the nature of it. And so there was so much tension going on because there were people who were related to family members who had left, who are now told you couldn't have any association with them. You literally teenage girls were living with staff members because they were told that they could not live with their parents because their parents decided to leave the church which I don't know if that's even legal, (laughs) but um, that's what was going on. Like in the high school, there was a, there were, I could name probably 10 people, maybe not 10, but like a good handful of people who I was going to high school with whose parents they were not living with because their parents had left and they were too scared to, or they were just indoctrinated. Right. So it was really, it was really, really tough for a lot of students. They were bearing their parents' responsibilities and being punished with guilt and shame. Like, oh, you know, your parents are the ones that left, you know, right. look at you. You're so spiritual because you stayed, you know, and not being allowed any contact with your family members or siblings. Like it was, it was really scary for a lot of people. Hmm. Right. So, um, you know, obviously, I mean, the, your, uh, your ending time there is, uh, pretty turbulent, <laughs> um, to say the least. Um, and, and when you mentioned the name Brianne, you know, Greg Neal's name is what comes up. And, uh, I, I think to most of my listeners, uh, are probably somewhat aware of the story, at least as, as what was reported in the news, um, but I'm curious about the inside look. It's kind of like the scop story, right? Like there was a there was a different vibe within There's the walls of the of yeah. that group uh, versus what was happening kind of nationally. Looking at this story, so uh, what was the first that this came out? The story, and you know, what was kind of the the mood and environment within the the church and the school about it? If there was any conversation about it. Well, at first, there really wasn't. It was kind of just among the staff because they didn't want it to blow up because it wasn't it wasn't taken immediately to the news. It was first brought to church members. Um, and one of the big church members who left actually wrote a letter, I think, to different deacons about the tape mm-hmm. that was found. And so I think at first they thought, oh, we'll just hush it up real fast. We've done this before with other members. We'll do it again. And then someone took it to the news. and. Um, Immediately, the whole thing was, these are obviously liars. They are sinners. They're trying to take down the man of God. They are just backslidden, and they want to watch our church crumble to the ground. Who who took it to the news? Do you know? Was it someone in the church or someone um, that left? Or? I, I do believe it was someone who had been in the church who left, and I... I don't know exactly for sure because I haven't had contact with them, but I believe they were a part of the family of one of the victims who actually came forward mm-hmm. on the news, um, which is it's such a sweet family. It's really horrible what happened to them. And they are actually very high standing in the church. Mm. Um, so I'm not 100% because there were multiple people who knew about it. Yeah. It just kind of surfaced. Right. I don't know if they did it anonymously. Um well, yeah, it was just something that popped it, up. Someone had found it while cleaning, right? It was like a janitor or somebody. Yeah, um, it was in the basketball closet in the school gym. No. With a bunch of other sermon tapes, I believe. There were there were boxes in the basketball gym, and I believe the janitor just found it in there. Um, but it had been found before that. Right. It had 
been discussed and then covered up. So I discussed think it, by the leadership staff, okay. I believe. Yes. Like it was already something that a few people knew about before it surfaced. Um, and then when it did surface, it was just too big for them to handle the second time around. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because knowing Berean with the staff members and just the clicks that go on with the leadership, there's no way that nobody else knew what Greg Neal was doing at the time he did it. There's just, and I know I don't really have proof of this, but being there, there's just no way no one else was aware of the tape. And the reason that I believed it as soon as I heard about it is because there was, um, and I'm going to use discretion with this, but there was a situation prior to this, I, I believe kind of right before this blew up, where a girl in the college had gotten in trouble for sending nudes to her boyfriend. And instead of just having a staff woman confirm it, the male staff members printed out the photos put to put into files for proof because of expulsion. They were going to expel her. And they passed it around in a meeting And all the men looked at them to verify that, yes, those were nudes. And um, this is when my dad found out about that. He was like, oh, absolutely not. (laughs) I have daughters in the college. Like, that is unacceptable. And that's when we started being more vocal with other people. And um, that's why when all this came out, I immediately believed it. Because a lot of staff men... (laughs) A lot of staff men had participated, even just in that one meeting. I'm like, well, you all felt so comfortable with that. I have no doubt you all are comfortable with the tape, Hmm. you know? No. Um, So so as that story developed, I mean, it was, it was, it was crystal clear in the news report. And we don't have to spend a ton of time hashing out the the story because I, I'm just (laughs) going to insert a news clip and, and call it a day because I think it's pretty clear, but I mean, essentially it came down to, it passed statute of limitations. And so mm-hmm. there was nothing they could do. And that's literally what was said. That's the only like, reason Greg Neal is was, not in jail. There was overwhelming evidence. Yes. Is the words that was used was overwhelming evidence. Yes. Um, and the statute of limitations is the only thing that saved him, which, which of course he paraded as a huge victory of him being totally oh, innocent. Yeah. So, oh, so, oh yeah. <laughs> so, so is that how it was basically, was it talked about frequently? Like, oh, it's this, cause, cause if you watch Greg Neal now, there's clips of him saying like, I'm not owned by the me too movement. I'm not this, like he's, he's very, um, about it you know um you know i think he even i think he was the one that did the clip too about like the fbi or something like he just went on this big he goes on these rampages about how he's not owned by anyone yes right so was that basically what the context of the the messages and what was being said from the pulpit was during that time yes a lot of sermons about not believing evildoers that right the ones in media news people they're only in it for the story they just want a good story and oh you shouldn't associate with people like that because it's satan basically knocking on your door and the reason they had to start talking about that in the church services is because newspaper like news reporters were actually showing up at church members houses so there was an instance where we had to like sit in our living room because news reporters were at our door and we were about to leave so we were like oh we're not doing this Um, But that's why they kind of had to start talking about it. It was actually, I believe, talked about way more in the school and in the college and among the staff rather than necessarily in the church. Um, I don't particularly remember much of sermons beyond, oh, 
always believed the man of God. You know, David was, uh, you know, I don't know why people compare that because David did sin. So that doesn't make your case any better, you know? So um, it was primarily in the school, I would say. Um, And I think that was on purpose because a lot of parents were like, I've known Greg Neal a long time and I probably believe it, but they needed those kids to stay Hmm. to be their next church because they were about to move from Fleming Island to Emmanuel Jacks. Right. Was there anyone, I mean, because it seems like for the most part, he had the backing. I mean, he had the backing of his dad. He had the backing of many people in the church. Were there a lot of people that left during that time or did most stay pretty, pretty loyal? Sadly, more than should have stayed, but I'm happy with how many left. Um, And that's because a lot of people who had influence were leaving. A lot of people who were very different from the Neils, a lot of people who were more people's people rather than this leader vitriol. Um, That was, I think, one reason why they were really nervous about my family leaving is because they knew my dad had been vocal about different things. He was not afraid to tell them this is wrong and I can't believe that you guys would do this. And if people asked him, what do you think of it? He was honest. Mm -hmm. And so they knew that when we moved, if we left, we were taking people with us. And we did. We did. I think after we left, four different families, quite prominent families, also left immediately after. And then several college students. Because something they never want to tell you about is parents came to my dad and said, I'm only comfortable sending my kid to this college because you're here. And as soon as they left, boop, tons of college students. Because we had a lot of friends who were college students who also were like, this is garbage. Like, I can't believe that this is acceptable. Um, And so a lot of people left of their own volition. A lot of people left because other families left that they were close with. A lot of people left because a crab tipped the bucket and they were like, oh, this is my chance to kind of slide out the back door. So, yeah, people were just kind of disappearing left and right, it felt like. Something that was going on is I think a lot of people are familiar with the press conference newscast, if they were paying attention to that, where Greg Neal came out and said, I took a polygraph test, which for those of you who don't know, is not a viable piece of evidence in judicial court (laughs) because they're so unreliable. Um, And it was private. So only God knows if they paid someone off. And and the guy who did it, wasn't he friends or like he was a member of the church or something? No, he was I, he was friends with a member of the church. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he says he didn't know who Greg Neal was, and maybe that's true. Um, but yeah, we'll stay God away knows. from conjecture about it, but it was interesting. <laughs> yeah. And he if you look at the clip, which um I'm sure maybe you'll put up or whatever, there's all these people behind him, right? And um there's like, it looks like college students, there's staff members and everything. And the thing they told us not to tell, not to talk about, particularly newscasters, is that staff members and college students were told that you are required to go to that press meeting. Hmm. It was not an option. So when we were at the school, none of us kids knew what was going on. We all of a sudden just got all called down to the gym from kindergarten up to seniors in high school. And there were literally only two college girls there to watch the whole school, which, again, I don't know if that's legal. (laughs) Um, 
And we were like, what is going on? Why are we all down here? It's not like an announcement. There's no like surprise because it wasn't uncommon in Berean for them to call you down for like meetings or assemblies and say like, oh, we're doing this thing, you know, like candy sale is coming up. Like it wasn't uncommon, but nothing like that was going on. All of us kids were just kind of left aimlessly in the gym. And we were all like, what? Where Where are the teachers? They were gone for like 30 minutes. And it's because they were all told that they were required to go to that press conference. That's who you see in the back there. It's not people who showed up willingly for the most part anyway. And it's, it's so weird because I actually see like my siblings in that photo because they were college students. They're in the background off to the side. And, um, you know, that's something that we were like told don't talk about because it looks fishy, right? To say like, oh, you're required to be there because they really wanted to put on this show of look at how much support he has. Look at all these people who believe Greg Neal. And I'm sure a lot of them did, but most of them didn't. And most of them are just there because they were required to be there and didn't want to get in trouble. Um, And then after that was made, it was about maybe the next day that it aired. Didn't air that day. And all of the students from the junior high and high school, we were called down to the principal's office, which for some reason had a giant HD flat screen in it. (laughs) I'd never heard of that in my life. And we all were told to just stand in there again, didn't know what was going on. We were like, why are we all in the principal's office it's 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 cramped like what's going on and they said you guys need to watch this and we watched that press conference on the news and when it ended the staff members were like yeah like looking gesturing obviously to us to clap to be like woo and a lot of them did and I just remember being like, why are we here? We're supposed to be in school. We're kids, honestly. These are adult matters. Like, what's going on? And later that week, they actually, staff members were encouraging high school girls to make these banners. And there were banners to say, we stand with Greg Neal. Pastor Greg Neal is innocent. We heart Greg Neal, like Pastor Greg Neal. And that was considered an after-school activity. And that was something they were doing. And um, it's it's terrifying to look back at now because the principal's office for a lot of high schoolers was not a good place. It, I remember watching girls go into the principal's office terrified and coming out crying. And I don't know what happened in there because I didn't have anything to do with it. I left before, but they were usually older girls. And they were usually ones that weren't on staff like staff kids. So I don't, I, I don't know what was going on in there, but I just remember being terrified <laughs> that I was going to get called into the office um, because they would hound you. It was a very dog eat dog at Berean and students would turn you in. I had no friends by the end that, that we left because you just couldn't trust anybody because they we're so good at being taskmasters. And I remember my dad had been campaigning for churches because we didn't want them to know we were going to leave because then they would try to do something like they'd done before and try to convince, oh, my sister's to stay at the college or my brother or something, you know, just make it really difficult to leave. And um, 
I would have staff members call me into their classrooms and just interrogate me about where my dad was. And I was like, I truly don't know, because that was something my parents actually did that was smart is they just told us kids, we're doing, your dad's going to be preaching. We're not going to tell you where until after he does it so that if they call you in, you can truly say you don't know and you truly don't know. Yeah. Um, and that was, it was really scary. It was really terrifying that they were being so active about making sure us high schoolers knew, like, if you're not behind Greg Neal, you're in trouble. Yeah. Very culty, uh, to say the least. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, it's just startling how much control is being exerted, you know? And, and I mean, but it, you also look at Greg Neal's friend group and we can definitely move into kind of your next chapter. Um, but, but I mean, I mean, Greg, I still have stuff I'd love to tell you. I mean, I, go, I just don't want to, I just don't want to beat a dead horse. So, I mean, as many stories you have, I'm, I'm willing to hear. Um, but I mean, I, I look at Greg Neal's friend circle and I look at, you know, I, Bob Gray senior. I look at like all these guys who are connected with some of the sketchiest people. I mean, yes. Goddard. Who, who's, who is Andy Bloom? He, he, he did a video on YouTube I watched a while back. Um, it was in 2019. It's the real story behind Greg Neal's video voyeurism case. Um, and he basically takes like nine minutes out of his message to talk about how the media lied about Greg. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Andy Bloom came later. This? Oh, this man. Yeah, I've seen him. I've seen his video as well. And I just had to stop halfway through because it's garbage. Right. It's garbage <laughs> yeah it's a, and i i'm not trying to be like mean or anything but i just want it to be so important and that people understand these pastors had no idea what's going on and half of them are probably in on it um because berean is a great payoff they are so good at butt kissery and they make sure that you are taken care of when nobody in their staff is right. so to all you pastors hi do you remember me? We have him coming here in May. He's going to do a series on, on uh, uh, the emerging church. Very good. Very good at it. But the uh, reason I'm telling you that is this. There was a camera set up in his office on his desk. A bunch of ladies were in there and they were changing clothes. Now they said, I haven't seen the video, but people said, for all the noise that was made, it didn't show what everybody thought it showed, but they were changing clothes. In the video, he comes, he knocks on the door, he goes in and gets some papers from off his desk after they get ready and everything's straightened up so he can come in and get his papers and gets them. He walks out and he leaves. Later, this goes to the police. There's great investigations, and when it's over, the police says, we believe that he's guilty, but we have no proof. It's, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's one of those things where I just look at it. It's, that's why I bring up the friend group. Is like when you have a certain group of people, and they all mm-hmm. are so closely connected with the same type of cases, like you have to start going like, there's something more here. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. something deeper to this. Um, and his more inner group that his friend group was in the church was, I would dare say, even worse. So I have no really? problem saying their names because it's like, what are you going to do? So David Wright was a big one, and he was the principal of the school. Terrifying man. Hate him to this day. And like, I have to do a lot for me to say that about you. Um, 
but he terrorized children. And I have no problem saying that because I have plenty of people who can back me on that statement. Um, I don't know. I don't remember his first name, but brother Montgomery, his wife, I believe was one of Greg Neal's secretaries. Mm. Also not great. I don't know why he was on staff. He hardly did his job. Um, one of the, the, the basketball coach who I won't name because I do know his wife and his kids. And the, I don't think, I think they got dragged into a bad situation. He's actually just related to the Neil. So I think it was just like, Oh, we got to get back up. Right. Uh, but a lot of his inner friend group that was on the staff were incredibly they, like not great. <laughs> they, yeah. they really shouldn't have been there. And um, I'll just real quick, I'll just give you a story about basically daybreak. Cause he was one of the worst absolutely the worst um and he was one of the biggest haulers for greg mm. neal right. and i'm not saying this to hurt his family or his children i went to school with his children i actually adored a couple of them that i got to know really well this is not to hurt them you don't get to choose your parents but you know i'm gonna call out what's not right and there there was a kindergarten girl um i'm not gonna say her name i'll i'll change it uh to like gracie and if i know you and your name gracie i'm sorry i don't think i know anyone that name and she was five and her parents were at the church quite a bit before that they were older and i believe she was adopted and she was a baby who had developmental problems because her mother had been on drugs and she was pregnant with her so lots of learning disabilities not i wouldn't just say necessarily special needs like she you didn't notice that when you first met her because she was so little but upon like teaching with her and working with her you could tell there was like a lag you know and there's nothing wrong with that um and so she was encouraged to be put into the school which by the way no one at Berean was educated or certified whatsoever to work with special needs children. Right. Um, Probably let alone any other children, <laughs> if it's based like any other Christian school. Uh, well, all of the people had degrees primarily from their college. And if they were older, it was from somewhere like Hiles. But oh, So they had a, a an unaccredited degree and were unqualified to teach children normally. So yeah, well, because, you know, you can't abuse kids. That kind of takes away your certification. Right. Um, but anyways, and so she was at the kindergarten and obviously a special needs child in a non-special needs environment is not going to do well and they're going to have behavioral problems, you know, because that's not the environment they're supposed to be in. And then you have staff members who aren't qualified or know how to work with a kid like this. And the poor thing we, we, we knew her because my sister babysat her after school, my older sister. And that's how I got to know her you know, because my brother and I would sometimes have to stay after school. And so we would go hang out with my sister and we got to know her pretty well. Um, super sweet, super, just a baby girl, like just five, she's just teeny. And she was in the office almost every day getting paddles for bad behavior. A five-year-old with special needs, clearly anyone who says they're a teacher would identify that this is a child with developmental needs who needs to go to a school that specializes in that. I was going into the office almost every other day to get swats, which is something they did at the school. They had a big paddle, a wooden paddle, and you it didn't matter what age you were. It, guy or girl, you get swats. And I remember... She was terrified of David Wright. 
And something that he would do, which it's funny, but it was definitely an intimidation tactic. And it it sounds weird and I don't do it just right. But anyone who is at Berean, you're going to know what I'm talking about, is he would go (laughs) around kids. And then you would stand up straight because you knew it was him. And I remember there was one morning before school, we were all sitting outside waiting for the gym doors to open so we could go in for class. And um, Gracie, she came over to sit by me and um, she knew we were safe because we were kind to her. And, you know, she didn't really get along with any of the other kids because she was special needs. Um, But she knew that, like, she knew me and she knew my little brother. And so she sat by me and I remember he came out and he did that, the boo-boo-boo-boo thing. And she immediately started crying and clinging to my arm. Mm. She knew it was him, a five-year-old. She didn't even have to turn around to know who it was. She knew exactly who he was. Mm. And I know who he was. And he leaned over like, you know, the way that a horror movie villain like leans over uh, like to see you. And he was looking down. He's like, why are you crying? You know, school is so fun. Oh, you better behave. And I remember being like, oh, my goodness, this little girl needs to leave. And thank God her parents caught on quite shortly after. And they pulled her and put her in a good school. But I remember being like, oh, my, these are children. This is a five. This is basically a baby of sorts, a five-year-old. And she's a little girl who obviously has special needs. And they just didn't care. Hmm. They just didn't care. And something about the church is they're like, oh, we have a huge special needs ministry. But I went, I had a friend who was special needs. You were not treated the same. So all of that is just propaganda to look good. If you're in, in my opinion, maybe someone else has a different experience. Um, but it was not just junior hires. They at the end there, they were very intent. No one was safe when it came to the school or college. So I'm sorry to go on a ramble, no, but I, I think it's important because people are like, oh, was abuse going on there? And truly, yes, I believe it was. No, no, I'm, I'm blown away. I just Googled uh, like corporal punishment in Florida and it's it's still legal in mm-hmm. Florida, which I, which I was surprised by because it's been banned in most most. I, I don't um, know states. why it's not banned in our state. I, I would love to be able to like talk to someone and be like, this shouldn't exist anymore. It's not yeah. 1950. Right. Well, yeah, and, the, was, and the issue is too, is that even if it is in the public schools, private schools, like I've talked about on the show, we get religious exemptions. So like it would take they a do. lot of reform, but again, that's a, yeah, that's a little bit of a, a side trail, but, but yeah, I mean, um, so yeah, it, it just seems like the environment, I just keep going back to the words control. Like it just seems like it was yes. very, very heavy yes. on control. Very um, hostile. Right. Very hostile. And it was definitely, when I say it was dog eat dog, they did. And they encouraged students. A lot of the abuse that other students endured was from other students because what do you it was mean by encouraged. That? Um, so I'll give an example, just super quick. So I did a field trip uh, to the beach when I was in junior high with a bunch of friends. The whole high school was there. And the staffmen, the wonderful gentlemen that they are, decided we should play a game of gladiator. And they were taking students, putting them in a giant inner tube on the beach and saying, you have to fight for the inner tube. We thought, oh, you just have to try to run. No, they wanted you to fight, like street fight. Girls and guys. And I sat there and I watched my friends beat each other up. And then they called me 
And they paired me intentionally with my best friend at the time who was on the fence with everything going on. And I apologized to her ahead of time because I knew if I didn't like punch her eyes out, I'd get in trouble. And we did go home with bruises and scratches and there were girls pulling each other's hair and there are all these teenagers cheering you on and these grown men watching kids fight. Like, again, is that legal? I don't believe so. Um, But that wasn't uncommon. And another thing that they would do in the school is they had this thing called the elder policy, which was like we dubbed it that based on the, the Bible verse that says respect your elders and stuff. But they would say if anyone was older than you, you had to obey them. And they did it by grades. So when you were in seventh grade, if an eighth grader told you to go get their books and pencils out of their locker and bring it to their class, whether you were going to be late to class or not, guess what? You were going to get more in trouble for disobeying the eighth grader than being late to class. I carried many people's books to class and you would get in trouble if you didn't do that. And I don't know why that was a thing, but it, it was like students were taught how to hurt other students And I don't know if that was their way of fishing out the ones that were going to do well or what, but yeah, power, it trickled down and it trickled down bad and it trickled into the school. And um, it was, yeah, it was really bad (laughs) for so many students. And I'm one of the lucky ones. I didn't get treated as bad because they knew my dad would come after them, but I can't imagine being one of the kids who didn't have a parent on staff. What what is it that you think, gave because i'm always curious but by this too is like your what what is it that gives you know see your dad you know the ability to kind of see through all of the noise and identify that there's some issues happening even though he was very much a part of that world like i'm always curious like how two people can look at the same situation and one sees very clear problems and one sees nothing wrong where they buy into it immediately like what what creates that distinction or separation i guess I know this is probably going to sound cheesy, but I think it's a distinction between someone who's actually a Christian because they follow God and someone who's Christian because they follow a pastor. Um, My dad, the whole time of my life, I mean, I've already mentioned this, and I think in our last call, but he's never associated with anyone that's corrupt as much as possible. Like once he knew you weren't doing something right, we were dissociated from you and he had no problem calling you out or holding you accountable or telling other people when they asked for his opinion. And it's because I truly believe he doesn't follow any man. He, um, again, I know this sounds cheesy or people are going to be like, of course you're going to say that about your dad. But I, I have looked at my family very critically in the past few years, um, almost to a fault at a time. And, he truly loves his church people. And when we were at Berean, he only took the job because he wanted to help students. And you saw the difference in the student body after we got there. People were so much happier. There was freedom that there had never been before. There were more students than there had ever been before. Um, Dating got better which that was a huge thing at Berean. Like if you're in the college, your dating life was very meddled in. Um, And that's like a whole other subject, but, you know, just throwing it out there, it was, it was pretty bad, especially at the end there. Um, 
but my dad has always felt if if you're in the ministry, you're there because God called you to serve his people. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing your ministry work properly. And so he's sat down and had conversation with these pastors. A lot of people don't like him. In fact, my family is not allowed on Fairhaven's campus. <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, that's just one. But, you know, like there's there's several pastors that we used to be associated with that we just don't associate with. Um, and... I think that's the difference. And I'm sure a lot of other people feel this too, is when you are in it for Christ, you see the alarms and the red flags when people start being in it for this man, who's a man, who's imperfect. And all of his power only derives from God and his church. He's nothing without them. But as soon as people forget that, I think that's where the kind of blur comes in. And also I think manipulation People don't know manipulation when they see it, usually until they've gone through it. My dad had already gone through that kind of thing before we got to Berean. And I I don't know if that's the answer that you're looking for or if it's if it makes sense to people, but I think it's just a matter of having discernment yeah. and knowing that you're not following a man. You're supposed to be following God. Hmm. And if there's anything that that man is doing that's getting in the way of God— they can't be doing it right. Yeah. At least in the Christian circles. I know the other people who maybe are atheist or anything might disagree. I think there's more than one answer. I think it's a multifaceted answer. Um, but at least for my parents, I, I know that it was because they had seen red flags before when the scop stuff was going on. Right. And so when we got to Berean, it was like, oh, we've seen this before. Yeah. So I'm sorry that went a little longer than I meant for it to. I just wasn't sure because I think there's so many right answers. Right, right. So what what led to actually taking the action of leaving? I know he started like checking out some other churches, things like mm-hmm. that. What what kind of sparked the actual move? Um. So I think I already mentioned that the campus they're at right now, Emmanuel. My dad was running. So basically, when Emmanuel. I don't believe they came to us and asked for a merge. I think they were just putting it out there that they would like to merge. And Berean was dying, and they knew they needed to rebrand and reformulate because it was really bad. They were like, we can't be in this brand. We can't bring Berean anymore. We got to move. So immediately, they jumped on that opportunity. But none of the other staff members who were so high and mighty and godly wanted to take on this dead church with only a couple families in it. Well, my dad had started churches before with only a few people. And he thought, oh, my goodness, this would be a great way to get my family out of here and give us space away from Berean and all these staff members. And so we started going there and we met the people and we just were like, we can't leave these people behind. Like, we have to leave. We have to do something like good people are still in Berean. That's what's sad. And when I I go through their Facebook every once in a while, um, and I'll see pictures of people that I know who are actually good people who are in it for the right reasons. Um, And we just knew we can't stay here. And the longer you stay, the worse you get mentally. And I think we were just all at the breaking point. (laughs) Um, My sisters and my older brother were both in the college 
so much was going on between them and uh, my two, my sister's two spouses were at that college as well. And we got them out, but we also started to see that this wasn't going to go anywhere. Greg Deal was not going to go to jail and everything was going to continue happening as it was. And then they were going to move to a manual. Like it, the, it was set in motion for that to happen. And so we knew if we don't get out by new years of, I believe 2011. Yeah. Uh, so it would have been new, the end of 2011 new years. If we don't have somewhere to go by January 1st of 2012, we're screwed. So my dad was like, I have six months to look for somewhere for my family to go and I got to get a job. We have to be able to pay for a move. And I think that really was the jumping gun is that like, this is serious. We cannot stay. So, so what was next? I mean, where, where did you go from there? And did it create a, did it kind of alleviate some of those pressures or was it out of the frying pan into the fire kind of situation and moving on from Um, Brian? Well, when we when we first announced that we were leaving, because it was very secretive, and we received on New Year's Eve night, like on that day that my dad had gotten this pastoral position in Indiana. Yeah. And we would be able to move in about a month, maybe three weeks. So, of course, my dad was like, now is the perfect time to spring on you that we're leaving and we're taking people with us right when you think that you've just won. (laughs) And of course they were like, oh no, we can't have that. We just got like this thing that says Greg Neal's innocent. How are we going to deal with this? So hilariously enough, (laughs) we got a going away party (laughs) and it was like this huge deal in the church. Like, oh, God has called Brother McSpadden to take this church, to lead them forward. Basically, here's the Berean stamp of approval. They're not leaving because of what's happening. They're leaving because it's God's will, you know. I mean, we've all seen it before in the IFB, the way they do that. And um, I don't know why I just thought of this, but the cake that was at our party was a possum. <laughs> and I still don't know why. <laughs> Maybe that's the only Florida. one that could- um and so i'm sorry that was i shouldn't have said that you still live in florida no it's i i come from california so i get the the land of fruits and nuts (laughs) joke every time i go to an ifb church so it's uh don't feel bad because i was born and raised in iowa so i got children of the corn all of the time i was in florida and now i live in florida and people are like oh you wrestle alligators so don't worry about it. I got it. <laughs> which which you do. That's why we took a few minutes to get out of this call. You were just wrapping up an alligator wrestling match. Exactly. You know, before, so. Of course. The alligator wrestling vegan. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, anyways. And so I, at first it was, it did feel like going into the fire because once they knew we were leaving the staff, we're like, oh, we were going to make this hell on earth for you guys mm-hmm. until the day you leave. And I remember we thought, okay, we're not going to have to go to school for like the next few weeks. We're going to be able to stay home and pack. We're going to be able to get ready to go. And I think Tom Neal kind of made it that like your kids need to be in school. And I'm not sure the whole conversation went down with that, but my dad felt um, just to, to make it as painless a move as possible that we would be returning to school for at least two weeks. Mm. And I remember when we found that out, 
my little brother just kind of shut down um, because he was in the elementary, but he was feeling the brunt of stuff that was coming off from me in the junior high because that's how they are. They're just guilty by association. Right. And I, I literally started weeping and I said, you're asking me to go back to hell for two mm. weeks. That's what you're asking me. And that's how I truly felt um, because before that, I, the staff members were getting really vicious with us. And um, there, shortly, shortly before we left, um, there was a situation where I, I would, since we weren't allowed to talk to our siblings, I would intentionally take my bathroom breaks when I knew my little brother's bathroom breaks were so that I'd see him in the gym just to like kind of look at him kind of like, are you okay? Kind of thing without actually talking to him. Um, and the, this, it's making me feel sick to my stomach. I, um, this was a really horrible day for me. This is what made me be like, Oh, we're, you're sending me back to hell. Um, and as I went into the gym and I could hear a child crying very, very hard, not screaming like in pain, but crying, um, just abnormally loud and I looked across the gym and it was my little brother he was literally like on his knees on the floor and this teacher was yelling at him in front of all his classmates and um he doesn't remember what he did or and he really barely remembers that situation I think he repressed it because he was so little and I booked it like just big sister instincts like kicked in and I, I booked it across the gym and I like immediately scooped him up and I ran. And that's the third time that I hid under a desk at Berean in an office with my little brother. And I was like, you have to be quiet. You have to be quiet, you know, trying to get him to calm down. I mean, he was probably only nine or 10, maybe, yeah, maybe about 10. And I had to wait until there was no one in the offices so I could call my dad. And I said, you have to come get us. I'm not going back up to my locker to pick up our stuff. You're going to have to do it. And um, this, I know it sounds not as dramatic as it probably was in that moment. But I do look back on that day. Like when people ask, oh, when did your childhood end? That was about it. Yeah. Um, and so well, that's how it was right before we left. So it was really horrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, sorry. Say, no, I mean, you say it's not as traumatic, but like there is this level, um, cause I, I used to struggle a lot with, um, you know, cause I felt like there were things that affected me that I kind of intellectually wanted to say shouldn't or things that happened that I would say, Oh, I'm blowing that up or why, right. you know, th- there'd be things where I'd be like, man, this is what's keeping me up at night. It doesn't make any sense. Or this is why I feel right. anxious or whatever. And, and this year there's been a lot more of that at surface because of the nature of the conversation I'm having. So I'm, I'm resonating with exactly. real stories. And um, there was a, uh, one of my, I think it was one of my guests or one of the books I was reading or something. It's just been a fire hose of information, but like understanding the idea uh, when I first heard the phrase betrayal trauma, um, and I don't remember, I don't remember where I first came across that phrase, but right when I read it, I was like, Oh, I was like, that makes a lot of sense. Cause like, right. cause again, like, uh, you know, I wasn't consistently, you know, sexually abused. I wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't physically right. beaten, you know, I was, but it's like, you know, it's not that much, but then I also, 
like, as I kind of talk through stuff on the show, I'm like, there were people I grew up around for 18 years who the minute I, the minute I stepped out of line, yeah, I was thrown out. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, I talk about my youth pastor on the show. Like I was literally over at his house once a month, you know, watching movies or you it know, is. just hanging out. And yeah. so like, so like for me, like I relate to a lot of stories people have where they're like, you know, Oh, my, my dad was like in and out, you know, like, I feel like that with my youth pastor, because that's like the level of closeness. Like I told him everything, like mm-hmm. he knows things about me that, you know, my parents, other people don't, know, yeah. you know? And so the fact that, you know, I haven't heard from him in seven years is pretty hard to grapple with sometimes, it you know, it, and when it, it happens lo- as a child, it's a severance. Yeah. And it can be traumatic. You know, so I, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I'm saying, so like what you're saying is valid. Like you're in a place where like just being a staff kid, like that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a feeling that's hard to explain to people is like, you are under a microscope a little bit. Uh, You're a fish in a bowl with no plants and there's people peering in the window. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) And, And yeah, like, but even that though, like, it's a weird feeling for me that like, when I go to the place where my parents work, you know, like currently there is this, there is this like feeling that people are staring me down because they know what I do now, you know? And so it's this very, because you love them and you do care. And I, I relate to that because, you know, I, I'm kind of in that position too, a little bit with my family. So I, the bonding. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that really is. I mean, that's the, that's the tricky thing is like, you know, I've got, I mean, I have amazing parents. I've said on the show, like they are, mm-hmm. they're sound very similar to yours. Like the, it's very open, very, you know, question, but then it's also, you know, I know there's people who they work with, you know, so it's hard for me to reconcile sometimes. It um, is tricky. You know, and- like, Oh, my parents love me unconditionally and are amazing but everyone they work with won't look at me if I walk down the hallway next to them. That's a very weird yeah. thing to deal with. So. And I think that's uh, fairly common in many religious circles, not just IFB. Yeah. I think so many people can relate to that where you step out of line just a tiny bit and your parents, because they're good parents, they still love you. They still associate with you. You're still welcome at family Christmas. But then you go in where you grew up or where they are and you already know all the eyes are on you yeah. and well, it's kind of like, I know you wear pants. <laughs> right. I mean, that doesn't really affect you, but yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. It's just a weird thing, but like, I mean, I mean, there's someone, there was a staff member, I was in their wedding, you know, and then I found out, yeah. like, I found out like after I left that they were telling people like, man, Eric's parents must be so disappointed, you know? And I'm like, I'm doing mission stuff right now. Like what in the world? I was like, I'm not, you know, whatever. Oh, I'm but sure it, that will happen just, as well yeah. after this. I mean, I, I know Hiles people follow you. Yeah. <laughs> and so they probably know who I am. It's funny that you looked in the camera, but I just saw you looking straight at me. Like I was the one sharing the story. <laughs> so I just got to be super uncomfortable. <laughs> But uh, it'll I'm work sorry. in the edit, though. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so so no, the yeah, the trauma is legit. Like I, I think that's true, and it's something that 
you know, uh, Claire Horner, who I sing the praises of often, he's a trauma therapist, talks about this, like all trauma is valid, you know, right. and your response to it is is normal. So so did you end up having to go back or was that kind of Yeah, we final... had to go back to school for two weeks. And, oh, I kind of clock out that time yeah. because staff members everywhere were stopping me like, it's so exciting that your dad is a pastor. Do you know where his church is? Yeah. How many people are there? What's the name of it? Oh, you know, we could send a tour group there next summer. Oh, well, I'll stay in contact. Like it was very like I, I'm being funny about it because if I don't, it's like terrifying. Um yeah. but they would just stop me, like literally just like grab my shoulder and I'd be like, eh. And there's a staff member like, how exciting. And I'm like, I don't even talk to you that much. <laughs> like, please don't right. hurt me. Um, it's, you know, I think uh, after the incident with my little brother, I was just on high alert mm-hmm. constantly with him because I was like, I had had the teacher that he had and I, she's my least favorite teacher. Again, I probably sound like a bitter old woman, <laughs> but um, like this is not a good teacher. And I'd had her for sixth grade. So I knew what a, <clears throat> excuse me, French uh, B word she was. And I was, so, I such, <laughs> yeah, the other one, Oh, the, the dog. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I was just on such high alert uh, with him because he was so little and they, they just had no discretion as adults that we shouldn't interrogate a 10 year old about his parents affairs like um so that was i was just so ready to get out of there i was so excited and we we didn't tell them the day that we were moving because we were actually going to leave that night because we didn't really want any staff members showing up at our house um and so we actually had a, a good couple friends help us and all but i think two of them ended up leaving themselves almost immediately after we did Mm. and um it was it was such a great day like I I I took a picture that day and I have it somewhere and I have this big angry bird hat where the it's like I'm wearing an angry bird and there's the truck in the background and we left at night um and it was bittersweet because my sisters were going to be flying to California to go to west coast and my brother was going to be going to Pensacola and then we were going to go to Indiana all like in the space of a day. So it was, it was very bittersweet. Um, yeah, I I don't really ha- have any other way to describe that, that time. We just, we just left literally in the night. We, you know, we got in the car and we went to the airport hotel and, and then we just drove. So it was very just like, get in, get out, pack, get, fill the truck, leave. You know, it was very like the whole day was very just scheduled. Um, yeah. Right. Right. So what was life post Berean? Um, did you just finish out school at the new place? Was this, is this a, I left halfway through the school year. Okay. Mm -hmm. I had nightmares for about a year and I, I think most of my family members did too. Um, I had nightmares that I woke back up at Berean and that we were still stuck there. I had nightmares of staff members in their offices. Um, yeah, 
it, it, when I say you have to detox from Marianne, you really do. It, it probably took my family about two years to get it all out. And for us to actually be able to talk about it, it took way longer than that. I think I only maybe two years ago actually sat down with most of my family members, including my parents, and were like, what was it on your side? Because obviously I'm not going to know everything as the same that they they didn't know stories that I had because at Berean and in other cults and places, stuff that's abnormal is normalized. And so you don't think much to talk about it until right. it detoxes. And so being able to sit down and then um, I got to reconnect with other people who are, who were friends of mine and they might not be friends of mine afterwards. And like, I'm sorry, you guys, uh, but the, uh, that are still at Berean. And I've had conversations with them, beautiful conversations about how they're doing, um, where they're at. And I've also got to reconnect with people who also left Berean around the time that we did. And we've got to like comfort each other. And so again, super bittersweet, but it wasn't fast by any means. Um, I still sometimes have nightmares. Um, I have night terrors. Every great once in a while, a couple of times a year, and they're very vivid and they're horrible. <laughs> um, and occasionally there will be something about Brian or someone there. Um, but uh, it wasn't fast. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sure anyone who's been in this a situation similarly or worse knows, you know, I think people have this idea that once you're out of it, oh, you're free. And physically, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but to detox mentally and get help that you need and connect the dots because like I said my parents didn't have all of us kids involved in everything for our own safety so that we could truly say I don't know um and there were things I didn't know about until literally a couple years ago where I'm like oh my goodness there's that dot that I've been like what connects these you know um and so it's it's still kind of ongoing. I mean, I can talk about it now uh, just fine. And like, I wouldn't say I harbor any hatred. Uh, I just, um, I think it just depends on the day, you know, it, it depends on sometimes I'll be going through a school book because, you know, I have, I'm a little shutterbug and I keep things and I'll find something that trigger something I I had forgotten and I have to deal with that all over again because it's like it was repressed and then you relive it and you do it a couple more times and then you talk to someone and and then you learn how to deal with it you know um then I'm sure everybody who's been through something like this can understand as well it's yeah I'm I'm trying not to ramble but it's just it's just just a day-to-day basis but it's it's taken years to get uh, to a place where talking about Berean isn't super hard. No. Do you, do you think? I mean, I usually wrap up most of my interviews with this question, and Sorry. it's it's a no, no, no. You're good. You're good. Um, and if you have more too, like interrupt me. Um, but I, I was going to ask you about what you do for um, like what you've done to like kind of recover heal from it mm-hmm. uh, which kind of did but I, I i'm curious for the the actual institutions like for the the independent baptist world in general is there um 
like, do you think there is hope for change within churches that are run this way? Do you think there is hope for the independent Baptist movement? I haven't asked this question actually in a long time. I used to end every episode asking this question and it's a great question. um, I'm curious what you think, like what your, your view is. You know, it's funny because I, I figured you were going to ask this. I don't know. I, I have prophetic things. I joke about it. Like if sometimes I'll be like, that's going to happen and it always happens. And so I, I told my husband the other day, I was like, I have a feeling he's going to ask me this question because I, I saw that you did it a lot in like other videos. And I was like, I just have this feeling. And I thought about it. And honestly, I don't think there's one answer because on one hand, I wish that I could say absolutely there's so much room for reform because there certainly is. And people are just, we just got to clean it from the inside out. But the other side of me is saying, this is a canvas that is so muddy. You almost just have to start with a new one. And I, 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 the reason I say this is because I've seen both sides of the Baptist movement. Some of the most wonderful, beautiful people I've ever met in my life are in the IFP movement. And on the other hand, some of the most awful, horrendous human beings I've ever met are in the IFB. And it's hard because I have family members who are still in the IFB. My dad runs an IFB church. My sister and her husband run an IFB church. My husband's family all kind of run an IFB church. But I... I, no one wants to say it, but I'll say it because I, I don't mind saying things people don't like to say. Everything dies. Every religion that has ever come into existence, especially things like Baptists, we are branched from something way, way, way back when. The Baptist faith is not like 100 years old. It's literally only a couple decades, really. When you look at it, maybe I would say 60. Does that sound about right to you? About 60 maybe years? Like where it officially became like the IFB. Like there were kind of Baptists before that, but it's like. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. 70, 80. I mean, a century max, I would say. If we're right, going to say yeah, like maybe, 1916 like, or nineteen twenty. Okay. So maybe about a hundred yeah. years, but I think they act like it's been around for since Jesus was alive. Jesus and that's was not a Baptist. True. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what um, they would say, though. They would say that this right. is the out like that. This that was the church the that he established, of blood, you know, kind of jam. So right, and that's not true because if you go through Baptist history, you see that the Baptist faith kind of trickles down. We have Protestants, we have Lutherans who still kind of follow the IFB as far as like salvation. A lot of them use KJV. Um, a lot of the same principles are quite similar. And, you know, I I think of the IFB as a bit like Rome. It thought it would last forever, but it didn't. And to think the IFB will exist forever is foolish. And I don't know if it's people like you and like me and other people, if that's because we will be the ones who go in and say we just need to do a blank slate. I don't know if it will die because of so many IFB churches just killing themselves. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I just, I don't really know because I don't think there is an answer. I really don't. For some people, yes, 
the IFB just needs to go is so clear. And for other people, no, there's still room for reform. And I think to just say one or the other is definite, is foolish. And I don't say that to be mean to anyone, like if that's your opinion, you're entitled. But I, I just, from a logical point of view, I just look at it as, well, it's going to die eventually. My job is just to call out things when they're not biblical, when they're not Christian, when they're not right. If that means that by calling out all these things, a denomination dies, that's not on me. No. That, because if it wasn't meant to die, it wouldn't die. Right. And it's, it's going to start in churches. And I want to say this to church people because I've been at PK and I've got to talk to a lot of church people is your pastors are who they are because of you. Without church people, pastors wouldn't have a job. Hmm. We have more power in churches than we realize. We get to go. If you don't feel like you can go to your pastor and have an open conversation, that's a problem. If you feel like your pastor doesn't make an open door policy for you to come in and question something, to question why we do something that doesn't give you clear answers for policy, that's not willing to look and accept the fact that maybe they're wrong because so many of these policies were made 50 something years ago. Right. You know, like you church people really need to realize they're the body of Christ. It's not this guy on a pulpit preaching at you. Right. And if it is going to change, it's not going to be with the pastors. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm I'm sorry. It's not going to be with the pastors. It's going to be with the people. And when the people decide that enough is enough, maybe reform will happen or they'll just say, let's do something else. Right. So I'm sorry. I know that's quite a long-winded answer, but I just truly don't think there is just one definite one um, because there's just no way to tell how the future is going to go. Yeah. And what people are going to do. And, you know, think about all the stories that haven't come out yet. Yeah, right. Yeah, so. I mean, I yeah, I think the movement itself has already declined quite a bit. I mean, you look at like Jack Hiles, you know, was on the cover of like Christianity Today, you know, I mean, like you've got people who, uh, or an equivalent magazine to it, like largest Sunday school in the world making huge waves. And now the independent Baptist movement is a drop in the bucket compared to some of the other movements that are happening. And and not to say that size equals truth um, right. or size equals that you're correct, but also just as an institution, I think it's, it's fading away. Um, I, will there be churches that are truly, and again, this is where the conversation gets muddied is that yeah. you know, the name independent Baptist church covers churches that are truly independent and are Baptistic mm-hmm. and are a church. Um, I think which yeah, I consider churches, like my parents church. Right. They're very much, their own they yeah. don't associate with a lot of the normal IFB stuff. So anyways, go on. <laughs> but but as far as like the organizations of the Bob Gray, Greg Neal mm-hmm. circle, you know, the circles are going to start fading out, especially when you see, you know, Bob Gray's kids are starting to distance themselves, you know, quite a bit, you know, not, mm-hmm. not to the extent that perhaps I would like to see yet, but it makes me it hopeful to time. see yeah. those steps happening. And, um, and so, I mean, the fact that, you know, uh, Scott Gray just preached a sermon on child abuse while, you know, I, I didn't agree with much of what he said, the fact that he covered the topic mm-hmm. is a good first step. And it is so, important. Yeah. Because so, they don't talk about it enough. 
Right. And so just that it's being talked about is good. And yeah, I think it's going to, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over these next couple of years with how much mm-hmm. energy is being put toward it. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of IP churches really in kind of defense mode right now with recovering fundamentalist podcast with this, with yeah. like a lot of different shows. It, it'll be interesting to see if that revitalizes them a little bit by accident yeah. or if it uh, speeds up that process a little bit. So it's it's hard because I do sympathize with them because they've dedicated their lives to this, you know, and mm-hmm. of course they're going to be defensive. That's just human. Where it becomes a problem is when you become defensive so much that you refuse to check yourself. Yeah. And the problem has been that pastors aren't checking in on each other. They're just not. They act like there's this big group, but they're just not. Um, so what that you go to someone's conference every year, do you talk to them any other time of the year? Mm. (laughs) Do you ever go out for a coffee? They don't. And so, um, I feel bad because a lot of pastors are very lonely and I'm not trying to sympathize, you know, in the sense of like, if you're doing something wrong, you're doing something wrong, but of course they're going to be defensive. And I think the important thing is that when people do have a change of heart, People that have already left the IFB, we have to be so gentle with them because it takes time. And all of us were in that position. Right. Because we we were all there. We we weren't involved in some of the more criminal Mm -hmm. things. We weren't involved in the abuses, like maybe in some of the the verbal abuses that were Mm -hmm. part of the vocabulary and things like that. But like when I see someone that's like really struggling with like, what they wear to church or what they listen to or what all those things that don't even matter enough for me to talk about on the show often. Like there's people that get so mad at people for those things. And I'm like, that was you three years ago. So you have to have grace for people coming out of that world and understand that like the idea of talking to someone who was Southern Baptist was a big hurdle to overcome. The idea of being friends with someone who was different in any way is a lot to work through, but you're coming out of a, very controlling environment and learning to be free for the first time. You you're have to take time. Your brain, right. you really are because you're basically you're cleaning as you're trying to fill with these other things. You're saying, here's this box of junk <laughs> and I need to go through it and I need to see if anything is worth keeping or not. But I also have all this stuff moving in at the same time. Right. And it's, it's not fast. Yeah. It's not a fast process. And um, I agree with you. I think a lot of people, they feel like, oh, that's so mundane. Like, how could you have a problem with that? And I'm not trying to obviously not call anyone out. But um, we just have to remember that these people are coming potentially from something like me or worse. There yeah. are definitely churches out ba- there that are so much worse. Like baseline is probably, you know, like your experiences or, mm-hmm. or on an even lesser level, like someone like my, my experiences, again, there's no levels of this stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I think everyone reacts to things differently, but like, I think about like my, my baseline experience, which was less extreme than yours in a lot of ways. Like I saw things that were crazy, you know what I mean? Like, and so it's one of those things where I'm like, if I had the, the shallow end of the pool, like it only gets worse from there. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, like if I just had the the separation stuff and I just had the, you know, I just had the quote unquote, you know, just had the predator yeah. shuffled to our church and, you mm-hmm. know, nobody thought it was a big deal. 
that's huge. Like that's a big thing, but like right. that's relatable to most people I talk to who have any experience in this world. And so like, sad, but yeah. which is sad, but like, but like, it's crazy that it gets so extreme that, that my reaction to my experiences is like, Oh, wasn't that crazy. But then mm-hmm. you talk to the, the way I knew that my background was crazy was when I started working a normal secular job and I would, they're like, they're like, Oh, I love this song. I'm like, Oh, what song is this? You know, or what's this or, or, you know, they would make some statement about something and I would be like, Oh yeah, we did this growing up. And they're like, what, <laughs> you know, like you start or, right. or, you know, Oh, you had what, or who did what? And, Oh yeah, there was this pastor that did this. What, you know, like it was like, Oh, I guess yeah. it was a little bit a little bit nuts. So, yeah. And I agree. And I think that's how cults are able to hide in plain sight so well nowadays is because Mm. what we have is people are, they go into churches looking for the extreme, right? Like when we think of cult, we're thinking like Jamestown, they're thinking like the Scientology stuff. We're thinking of the people who like worship aliens and do like orgies for them. You know what I mean? Like we're looking for bizarre things. So we miss the things that are just a little bit off. Yeah. And that's how they're normalized. Right. And that I agree with you because I, until I left Berean, I had forgotten what just being in a normal church was like. Yeah. And I was blown away and I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, that was kind of nuts. Like, but right. it was so normalized because I thought, oh, well, it's not that person who's like out here doing God knows what. Right. And, and I think a lot of people relate to that. So yeah, I agree with you. I think I think a lot of people, churches take advantage of that, churches, cults, right. because they're like, oh, but we're not doing anything bizarre. We're doing very churchy things. That's the thing. The, these kinds of cults, things like, things like Berean, they're so good because they give you both a church experience and a cult experience. And they straddle yeah. that line. And just depending how deep on deep in you are in it will depend on how you view it. Right. That's just, I think the truth. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't want to cut you off. If you have anything else you want to, you want to interject with, but um, are you, I guess I'll just ask you before I just wrap it. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to, th- I know there's a million things to that we could get into, but I feel like it's, it's really up to you. If there's anything you want to talk, I mean, I'm truly seriously down for anything because yeah, like I, I said, I, I could talk about whatever. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> Cause I feel like we've like gone into a natural close. Conversation. But I also don't want to like, I also don't want to be like, you have this. And then I'm like, okay, well that's it. And then you'd be like, Oh wait, what is this? So um, <laughs> if there's anything else that's like, you're Maybe like, that you want to edit in later or something. But or? If there's anything you absolutely were like, I wanted to say that, but I didn't get a chance to, you know, oh, okay. um, or anything like that. That's a loaded <laughs> question. Uh, Cause it depends on who I'm talking to. Right. Um, I think, um, yeah, I think something I would like to say, cause I know there are going to be people in the IFB faith who watch this and there's going to be people that possibly know me. And um I just want to disclose that none of this is coming from a place of hatred. Hmm. I'm not stepping out as Bill McSpadden's kid to be hateful or destroy anybody, Hmm. as are so many other people, you know, like yourself, Eric. We're doing this because we've seen wrong, and it's mixed because when you grow up in the Baptist faith, you're told to call out sin. Hmm. You're told to see it. You're told to condemn it. You're told to fight against those things. 
Right. And so for for myself, I've wanted to have this conversation with someone for a decade and a half. It will be 11 years since I left Berean mm-hmm. and I still get nightmares. So if you're watching this and you just want to go on a rant about how, oh, it's just another PK who boinged. No, I'm still a Christian. So many other people are too. I have looked at this incredibly critically and I'm not trying to like put myself on like a pedestal, but I'm speaking for other people like myself and for people like you. We're not out here because we want to have problems with the IFB. I wish that I had no stories to tell about churches that I've been in. I wish to God that I didn't know some of the stuff that I know, but it's there. Hmm. And, you know, Jesus called out the Pharisees and I think Jesus was like the first religious activist because look at him. He was tearing down these institutions that had been in place for so many years because maybe they started right, but they got lost along the way. And that happens. And I'm not condemning anybody particularly in the IFB, like some random person who just goes to church and it's like, but I like actually love my Sunday school. This the, These conversations are not directed at you. We're directing them at people who are abusing this religious position right? To who manipulate good people. And, you know, I, I wish that some Baptists would go into this with such a more open mind and realize that none of us want to have these conversations. Right. I am certain, Eric, that you never in your life wanted to start a podcast discussing any of these things. Right. None of us did. No, yeah. none of us wanted these experiences. None of us wanted to have to come forward and relive these moments. So um, if I could just say anything, it's just like we're we want to have grace with you. We want to have conversations with you guys. We want to find middle ground, but we can't do it if you guys are over on your other podcasts talking trash about everybody. Right. You know, if you if you're so right, you should be able to come on and have a conversation with someone like Eric or someone like myself that's civil and unbiased with open minds. I am very willing to listen to all the reasons why IFB is good. Yeah. But I'm also asking for people that might watch this and are like, oh, another PK, you know, who's gone off the rails. (sighs) Just. You need to take a critical look at yourself, maybe. <laughs> it might right. sound harsh to say, but uh, just there needs to be more conversation, civility, just a general. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if that's like worth anything putting in there. And I know it's kind of all yeah. over the place, but I think it's important. Yeah, no, for sure. No, I've I've done, I mean, I've spent hours on the phone with IFB pastors who I'll never name because it was a private conversation, but just talking through this stuff and like, and, yeah. and, you know, I, I've had some that have reached out and said, Hey, I want to come on the show. And like, you know, awesome. I, I pick and choose with, with who I allow on just because of the platform and like it's for survivors primarily. So I, I want to mm-hmm. be careful and, you know, like Nathan Rager, God bless him. Like not going to be a guest on the podcast. Um, but I'm more than happy to talk offline about some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've talked with people literally, I spent some time yesterday with somebody who, you know, their first message to me started with, I don't like you. Um, and (laughs) you know, know, I'm more than happy to get, those are the best conversations. Right. But, but I'm happy to get on the phone with anybody Mm -hmm. and talk through it 
had a pastor, you know, who reached out, said, I'm King James only pre-trib, you know, blah, 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 like spouted off his whole doctrinal statement. And he said, but I hate abuse. And I was like, great. Mm-hmm. So let's start there. And yeah. you're not going to be on my show for any of the things you just said. So mm-hmm. um, we have to find that common ground. And if right. you're in it for the right reasons, we can find the common ground that yeah. pastors abusing their power is wrong. Yeah. That churches that abuse their members and their staff is wrong. That abuse is evil and needs to end, that it's unacceptable. And we have to start calling out abusers. Finding these common grounds Mm -hmm. is is key. And it's it's not our job to condemn everybody else. We all answer to God one day. My job is not to sit here and evaluate your life and like take a checklist. Mm -hmm. But I can certainly find a common ground and sit down because in my mind, I'm thinking about the victims. Yeah. I'm not thinking about your feelings and I'm not thinking about my feelings. I'm thinking of all the children that are subjected to these things, all of the people who are in living in this hellhole of the nightmare repetitive yeah. abuse that's happening. And if we can all just agree on that, then let's just fight for that. Right. This is not an ego trip. If you're if it, it's about the victims yeah. and it's about making the world safe and mm. making it what God would have wanted it, which has nothing to do with abuse. It has nothing to do with hiding, you know, perpetrators and pedophiles. That is nothing that Jesus is interested in. He's interested in taking care. Like you can see in the Bible, how clearly he discusses the way we should treat children, the way that we should value them. And they're so devalued, I think in a lot of these circles. Right. And I'm not trying to go on another rant, but just finding this common ground and realizing that we all do have something in common that we can sit down with. I just, I would love for those channels to be opened again because we relate to those people. We were there. We were in their shoes. We can have those conversations and laugh about it. I still laugh about with some of my very IFB friends about like, do you remember that one pastor who like kept smacking the pulpit and then almost passed out and we like joke about it? You know, it's, you know, we're Christians first and foremost and God says we're a family and, you know, siblings don't always get along, but that doesn't mean you stop loving them. That That doesn't mean you just cut them out. And um, I just, I just hope my hope for the Baptist faith is that they just start reaching back out to people and loving them again without that checklist. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying not to cry because it's something that like makes me genuinely very sad. Because um, I just wish that that would open back up because God, he looked at Jesus's ministry. He talked to the woman in Samaria. He had no problem talking to the lepers, like these people that had been shunned by the religious society. He he was literally about you are Christ's family first. Hmm. And that, that communication, that common ground is that all we need to have to have civility and peace and love. And then just you do what you're supposed to do and I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And I just, I wish that there was more of that in these Christian circles. I just so badly wish there was more of that. So I'm sorry. I'm not trying to rant. I just, if I could call anyone to action, it's like, please start talking to each other. We don't have to agree on everything, especially now, like so much stuff in the air all over the place. But like, let's Um, agree on like the clearest black and white issue ever, which is like church should be a place that's safe for women and children. It's a spiritual hospital. That's what it's supposed to be. So yeah, exactly. 
Like that, if I, you know, when you said like, what do you want to say? I was like, ah, you know, but like, I think that would be what I would want to say. It's just like, let's just open the lines of communication back up. And if nothing, just be civil. (laughs) Like, come on. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, that was a um, pretty unifying uh, last few minutes. (laughs) So I think, (laughs) I think for anybody who says, you know, oh, you're just here to attack or tear down, like, uh, this is probably a good section of the show to point their way. So but um, timestamp below. There you go. Right for the piece. If you're mad, just click here. You know. But um, but I really yes. appreciate you you coming on and sharing. And I know it is like, it's it's uh not easy unpacking all of this stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it is. It's like you know, it's confusing and irritating to kind of have to dig into some of it. But I I appreciate you being willing to do so. And I know it's been a. I know it's been a journey trying to figure out how to get this to there happen. There were higher powers at but, work uh, for sure. But, yeah. People have no idea how complicated this was putting this together. And, um, but I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. It, me- it means a lot. So, and I, I love your platform so much. Like it's so necessary. And I, I do appreciate how you're not vicious about it. You know, I've seen a couple that are just so like, just, destroy the IFB and everybody in there. And I just appreciate how we're just having conversations, which is exactly Mm -hmm. what we need to be having. So thanks for letting me on. Like it was actually quite enjoyable. I know it's like a lot of tough stuff, but, um, it feels good. You feel lighter. Like, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's ripping the bandaid off and then you can kind of heal kind of thing is like, it's, it's been, I feel like it's been a year of that and I feel like now I'm starting to have things where I'm like, Oh, that feels a lot better to talk about now. You have to rub salt in the wound and then it's good. That's your infection out. It sucks when you're doing it, (laughs) but then it's, it's just so much better. So if you guys know, like Eric's awesome, talk to Eric, (laughs) (laughs) don't blow up his feet, but like, no, that's awesome. (laughs) Well, cool. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, and I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, we'll wrap it up for here, but thank you guys so much for tuning in and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at preacher boys doc. Additional information can always be found on preacher boys Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.